I am here with David Gilmore. How would you like to be introduced this I, time around? I'm a, a professor at the University of Toronto, teaching literature and uh, creative writing. I've published about uh, 10 or 11 uh, novels, and you've been kind enough to have me on your show a couple of times. I won the Governor General's Award, probably because I won a good jury. Everybody knows that you don't win an award, you win a jury. Uh, and you had me on, I think we had a, a very interesting class that we did. first yes. interview. So anyway, yeah. here we are, we're back. We're back, and you told me not that long ago that, that you're a fan of Truman Capote's writing. I'm the great Canadian fan. I'm the only one I know who teaches Truman Capote on his university curriculum. It's a slightly hard sell. A lot of people don't understand that he was not just a talk show pet mm. who was five feet tall, wore white scarves, and had a baby whale's voice, but he was actually a great stylist, as great as any stylist in the 20th century. Mm. Scott Fitzgerald, Proust, and Truman Capote, they're all on the same level. He was a truly great artist, but his work, because it tended to be about largely social issues and social people, he loved rich people. Yeah. And young people are not so impressed by that, this particular generation. And it's not that I'm impressed with rich people, I'm impressed with the way he writes about rich people, the same way that I'm impressed not with Scott Fitzgerald's rich people, but everyone who reads The Great Gatsby wants to go to those parties mm. because they're the best parties in literature. It's the way rich people are treated. And it's the same thing for Truman Capote. So when I read Capote, I had the same response to him that I did when I read The Great Gatsby, which was it was like some drug was fed into my system. And I remember thinking it was Music for Chameleons, which was the first book of his I read. And I thought, oh my God, this guy writes like an angel. He can just, he takes words and he throws them up in the air and they just sprinkle down on the page in the most magical pattern. It seems effortless, but one of the things I've learned is the signature of great art is that it appears to be effortless, but isn't. Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> I hope that wasn't too windy for you. No, no, that was... Uh, These are my party tricks. Well, I... Uh, Do you want to give us a hint of the first paragraph? Well, first of all, we talked about reading a couple, two or three of his of his short stories, yeah. and uh, we've settled on Mojave. Can I just set Mojave up? Please do, yeah. Okay. I, Truman Capote wrote uh, a, an unfinished novel called Answered Prayers, and it cost him all his friendships in higher society because he told all the secrets, all the dirty secrets that the rich people, the Kennedys, the really super rich people of the States, had told him because he was sort of their house pet. He then sat down and wrote this book, which essentially bit the hand that fed him. Yeah. And the very first story is the best of the bunch. It's called Mojave. And he was 30 years old when he wrote it, and he asked the editor of Esquire to fly down to his house to see it. And they had a feeling that it was probably pretty good. The editor flew down. Capote made him have a swim, then made him have a martini, and then stalked across to the other side of the pool and watched him read it. The editor read it and said, Truman, this is brilliant. This may be the best thing that you've ever 
written, and that included In Cold Blood and all of his Miriam Headless Hawk short stories before. Okay, there's your setup. This is the very first story in Answer Prayers, which eventually Capote decided not to include in the book because yep. he didn't think it fit organically, but he was wrong. Well, I should say that uh, no, I've, I've read uh, just this afternoon a good part of Unspoiled Monsters, which is... Dazzling. Really funny as hell. And, and not only, you can't read anyone after you've read Capote. Everyone else, it's like riding a Rolls Royce and then suddenly find yourself on a country road in a Jeep. Mm-hmm. You can't, the one thing about Capote is you've got to wait for 24 hours before you can read anyone else because his prose is so pure that it makes everyone else seem like a Bulgarian. Well, <laughs> some of it's pretty vulgar. Yes. Um, for example, this, this is in Unspoiled Monsters, a burly guy with a broken nose and a flushed, freckled Irish complexion. Nobody you'd take for a queer, but he was. <laughs> That's very true. And using <laughs> Nobody, even when this book was written... Nobody used queer anymore. It's no. just fearless. And, yeah. and if you listen to the rhythm of the sentence, nobody you'd take for a queer. Yeah. It's just perfect. But he was. Yeah, but he was. It just bespeaks <laughs> such fantastic control and humor. The thing about Capote was he was very, very funny. In fact, I was a kind of Hershey bar whore. There wasn't much I wouldn't do for a nickel's worth of chocolate. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, he uh, he created a narrator for this book called P.D. Barnes. Yeah, P.B. Jones. P.B. Jones, right, yeah. that's it. And he was a professional masseur, which yeah. I think is a very ingenious idea about how you would get the secrets of the rich because everybody tells their masseur everything. And so that's how, I think, why he created that particular persona. Okay, listen to this one. Uh, Although facial exercises are a lot of crap, the only effective one is cocksucking. No joke, there's nothing like it for firming the jawline. With my assistance, Agnes Beerbaum improved her facial contours admirably. (laughs) You see, the thing is, I have a feeling, I don't know because I'm straight, but I have a feeling that that's probably true. The thing about Capote is, for all his flippancy, there are periodically glimpses of truth, observations that are extraordinarily transient. For his, for example, here's one right here, which is from Mojave, and he's talking about this woman, and that she, he says, she wanted to laugh, and at the same time, she couldn't, because she realized that he was serious. And also because she knew well how true it was that certain persons could only be made to recognize the truth, be made to understand by subjecting them to extreme punishment. Now, there are people in the world who will not accept the truth unless it's accompanied by a smack on the side of the head. And Proust makes the same observation. He says there are some people who simply it's easier to slam their head against the wall than to try to explain to them why they should stop behaving the way they're behaving. This is in the arena of extraordinarily accurate perceptions. Here's another one. 
I know how trite this is, a character speaking, and for the moment it's no help. But remember, the narrator says, there's always somebody else. Just don't look for the same person. That's all. And I've thought of that many times because I've had a number of women leave me in my life. And I have realized that he's right, that you actually are tempted to go out and try to find somebody like the person who just left you. And it's always a disaster. Mm. And the only way you're ever free from a previous love is to find someone who is not at all like that person. And I came across this first in Capote, and it was one of those mm. dazzling moments of recognition where you go, that's the truth. Okay, so away you go. Did you want to read? Yeah, I'm just going to go with the first, the very first sentence in Mojave is, at 5 p.m. that winter afternoon, she had an appointment with Dr. Benson, formerly her psychoanalyst and currently her lover. So if that doesn't get you uh, rearing to get yes. to an answer. Yes, absolutely. Because Mojave is really, it's about nobody ever getting what they want. And that it's about that everyone else gets what you want and you get what they want, but you never get what you want. And that really seems to be a message that runs all the way through that story. And I think it was true for Capote. He never managed, he was gay, but he never managed to find anyone who wanted him and the people who did want him, he didn't want. It's interesting, uh, the narrator here, she's having this affair, but she automatically sort of starts questioning herself. Why am I having an affair with this guy who's basically a, a loser and he doesn't, he doesn't even appreciate anything? I'm, she gives him gifts, she gives him money, and the guy that she's having the affair with is nowhere near the man that her husband is. Yes, uh, yes but, but she's husband... still. She's still having an affair with this guy. That's right. And she's, if I remember correctly, she doesn't sleep with her husband because she's afraid of getting pregnant again. Is this, if I got the right character? She is in love with her husband. And for some reason, they have no sex life together. And he himself feels something that we have all felt, you and I, which is as you get older, young women stop looking at you the way they used to and they start to look at you as if you're a fire hydrant or a parked car or invisible you become, you yeah. become invisible and her husband has lost his sexual interest in his wife but, but she he, also had the kid too and i think that traumatized her it, it and she really didn't tra- want she was, to have anything right. to do with sex after that yes yeah, yeah. but uh, the part i have difficulty in buying is i don't have not met in my life, and I'm 70 years old, so I've been at the business of men and women for, let's say, 50 years. 50, five, zero. That's a long time. I've never really met a woman who was in love with another man who went to bed with somebody so beastily unattractive as the individual that she chooses, the Dr. Benson. And my suspicion is, is that Truman knew that he could write a character who was piggish, hairy, sweaty, and unattractive, and he decided to employ that character because he knew he would do it well. But to be absolutely honest with you, if you step aside from the exquisite seductive prose, 
I'm not sure that that's true. Believable, yeah. I'm just yeah. not sure. But it's so exquisitely written. And mm. I've taught this story at the university. I must have read it 10 or 15 times. I don't care if it's true because it's like a $100 an ounce liqueur. Yeah. She wore her own hair, fluffy and, uh, I love this here, tobacco colored, like a childish areola around her deceptively naive and youthful face. You know, there are kind of empty phrase makers. The guy who wrote the John Lennon biography, for example, the very first one, who he's dead now, but he was a classic phrase maker. And you always, and Gore Vidal was a classic phrase maker, which is they would opt for the good, well-turned phrase at the expense of the truth. Mm. But with the exception of a few moments in this story, I don't feel like Truman is afraid. I feel like he's capturing magic. He's capturing mm. fire. And let me just, if I can, let me just read you a paragraph that I've got underlined here. This is um, a description of, of the same woman, the one who's in love with uh, the, the man who's not her husband, her husband and who's sleeping with this unattractive uh, Dr. Benson, of her apartment. Now listen to the prose. A South Seas Gauguin over the mantel and a delicate fire fluttering in the fireplace. French windows offered a view of a darkened garden, drifting snow in lighted tugboats floating like lanterns on the East River. I mean, that's as good as it gets. But it's not just phrase making. It is, I think it sounds pompous, it's great art, it's great painting. Words as strokes of a paintbrush. Well, and that's what that puts you in mind of is a painting. Yes, you're, it you're is. Looking at a painting. And, and he goes on to, to say that in this same room there rested an ice filled silver bucket. Embedded in the bucket was a carafe brimming with, get this, brimming with pepper flavored red Russian vodka. It's brimming not just with vodka, mm. not just with red, but with pepper-flavored mm. red Russian vodka. Mm. That's what the French called le mot juste. <laughs> Great. Okay, look, now we get into something that's uh, quite uh, thought-provoking. And She has a hairdresser. Yeah, uh, is Carlos, it Carlos, or is who, that... He's yeah, been abandoned by his lover. And yeah, he's, he's upset, because what happened is his lover has fallen in love with a woman, yes. a young woman, and the young woman is perfect, and she's suggested that the three of them live together. Yes. Okay. So here's what Carlos says. The only way I can communicate, and this is on page 269 at the top, the only way I can communicate with him is to kill him. Then he will understand. <laughs> okay, okay, so is this a theme here? Well, you know, as then I said, then he'll understand. There are a few moments in 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 Capote where I feel as if he succumbs to the drama of language, because once again, I don't know, in my experience in fifty years, any gay man who has ever fallen in love with a woman and left his lover. I've known gay men who've left their lovers because they want to have children, because yeah. they've been 
exhausted with the gay life, but I've never seen someone do it by preference. I Unless he's just bi. Maybe he wasn't... Maybe yeah, he wasn't... Well, you know, that's interesting. I don't think there's any such thing as a bi guy. I think you're either gay or you're straight. Okay. And every time some guy tells me that he's bi, I know he's gay and he's ashamed to admit it. And I don't know why he's ashamed, but I've never met a convincing bisexual male in my life. You're straight or you're gay, or you're a liar. You don't think there's a spectrum where you can be... Uh... Since I'm going to put my foot in my mouth, I'll say this. I think that women can be bisexual. And yeah. I've known a number of women who've had completely satisfying relationships, sexually consummated relationships with women, and fully satisfying relationships with men. Yeah. I don't believe the reverse is true. I don't okay. believe... I've never encountered a man who can actually make that claim convincingly. I, I mean, I don't care. I'm always vaguely astonished when some man tells me they're bisexual because they never are. That's interesting. This is the second time you've questioned Truman now. Yeah. But you're, again, you're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and you're willing to suspend that doubt because of the Quality pros. of the pros. Yeah, the style. The thing about it is, is Hemingway was a great pain in the ass. I understand that. And he was not a very pleasant man. But Hemingway doesn't lie. And when you read books like A Farewell to Arms or The Sun Also Rises, there are no moments where you read them and you go, ah, that, that couldn't happen. I think one of the rules of literature, great literature, mm. is it doesn't have to have happened to you, but it must be able to have happened. I think in Truman's case, occasionally he's carried away with the excitement of his prose and he creates situations which I don't believe. But I also don't care that I don't believe them because I find the quality of the prose so pristine and so exciting. But if you want the truth, unfortunately, you've got to go to Hemingway because Hemingway mm. really never lies. At least in his books, he was an enormous bullshitter in real life. He couldn't tell the truth. He didn't have a good word to say about anybody, and he lied all the time about everything. But he didn't lie about human behavior in his books. Truman does. Bless okay. his heart. And by the way, I know people, because I interviewed his biographer, Truman was in real life a notorious liar. Yeah, he, he lied, just doesn't come across as a lied, nice guy. He does. Truman just lied about everything. He yeah. could not resist telling stories. Yeah. And you always knew that he, he never had a good word to say about another writer. He shared that with Hemingway. Uh, they both put each other down madly. But the thing with um, Capote was, and I used to sort of defend him, but then I suddenly realized that there's a reason why lots of people don't like somebody. You know, whether it's John Lennon or Truman Capote, these people have enemies for a good reason, and it's not always sour grapes. And the thing with Capote is, you realize that the nasty stuff he's telling you and delighting you over lunch about is exactly the same kind of stuff he's going to say about you when yeah, you're not yeah, there. Yeah. And that's the that's I've always found that with backstabbers. You mm. think that you're getting the special goods from them, mm. but you're not because they're going to dish you up the minute you leave the table. And yeah, how do you have a relationship with someone like that? You can't because yeah. they're liars. You yeah. you, know, they're, you can't trust them. You can't you can't have a relationship with an alcoholic. A yeah. drug addict or a liar. These are things that at the age of 70 I have learned the hard way. You can't have a relationship with them. And I think that's why, uh, sadly, Tr Truman was very, very alone at the yeah. end. And yeah. Shut a Final Door, which we'll get to, mm. I have is the most eerie roadmap of his future 
that he wrote when he was 23, but we'll get to that later. Let's go to suicide now. And that's the reason for most suicides. Someone is torturing you. You want to kill them, but you can't. All that pain is because you love them, and you can't kill them because you love them. So you kill yourself instead. Yeah, I think that's a lovely, lovely piece of phrasing, but I think it's bullshit. I, I'm, I'm not going to get into a personal mm -hmm. story here. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with suicide. I'm familiar with the issue. I'm familiar with the experience. I've been close to people who did it. It's just not true. When people commit suicide, it is as if they have no logical reasonable other option. In other words, suicide is not an act of, of emotion. It's an act of what seems to be cold, calculated fact. In other words, it's like saying, yeah. am I going to jump out of this building or am I going to shoot myself? Mm. There is no third option. It's when tunnel you get thinking, to that stage, yeah. you are crazy enough yeah. to kill yourself. But you it does seem logical. You think, hmm, yeah. I think actually jumping out of the 82nd floor is probably a better idea. And people do it. Mm. But it's often done under the delusion of being rational. I don't believe what Capote writes there for a second. And I think that Capote himself was on a long suicide um, thing, but I think it was suicide by seeking anesthetic. I think he didn't mm -hmm. like the sensation he carried in his body, mm -hmm. and so he drank and he drugged himself to get rid of it. I don't think it was any more than that until it became an addiction. I think the other thing, too, about suicides often is that you're, you feel like you will never, ever find love again. Yes. Uh, you become convinced of that. Yeah, it seems to be because you think... I haven't got it now, mm -hmm. so why would now ever change? Yeah, and it's me. I can, I'm unlovable. I can't. And why would that attract? Change? Yes. Yeah. And then the extraordinary thing is, you meet someone, they fall in love with you, and that seems perfectly natural to you too. You mm -hmm. think, well, yeah, of course they're in love with me. That makes sense. And so you alternate. At least I have in my life, back and forth between these two poles of being either arrogant about being loved or destitute because you never will be loved yeah okay back to the story the cousin who was married to a harridan and lived in greenwich i think maybe it's like what i liked there was was married to a harridan and lived in greenwich just together it's like okay married to a mar and Oh, by the way, he lived in Greenwich. Yeah. <laughs> it's an aggressive statement that's followed by a yeah. matter-of-fact statement. So what it is, it's, it's, it's the sentence of somebody who has a very good ear. Mm. And Capote's ear was musical. It was very musical. And Scott Fitzgerald was musical. These guys had, if you read a Capote sentence, um, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to actually read one to you right now. Yeah. Um, and this is her whispering to her husband just as she's falling asleep or pretending to fall asleep because she's terrified of having intercourse with him. She's terrified of getting pregnant because her, her, her last pregnancies were so terrible. So they're lying almost ready to fall asleep. And she says, now listen to the rhythm, the musicality of these two sentences. I love you too, she repeated with pretended sleepiness. Mm. 
and with a feigned languor she moved to draw the window draperies. Drawn, the heavy silk concealed the night river and the lighted river boats, so snow-misted that they were as muted as the design in a Japanese scroll of winter night. Mm-hmm. You could put that to music. It, it very painterly too. I find very painterly because again, you know, he's he thought very of Japanese, yeah. And it puts you, yeah, yeah. everyone has an image of that, yeah. and it puts that directly in your mind. They're like a series of colored paintings, mm. one after the other. His stories. So that's why the narrative line sometimes isn't so important because you're so seduced by this masterly array of paintings, delicate, perfect paintings, one after the other. Yeah. He is, it is like $100 an ounce liqueur. There is nothing like Capote for sheer prose pleasure. So from suicide to uh, sheer prose pleasure and paintings to orgasms. <laughs> yes. Here we are. Oh, my Here God. Here we are. Here we are. We're going back to the guy that she's having the affair the with. The ugly, attractive, yeah. hairy, Ez- Ezra Dr. Benson. Yeah, Ezra Benson. <laughs> this is the description of one of his orgasms. To judge from appearances, orgasms were agonizing events in the life of Ezra Benson. He grimaced. He ground his dentures. He whimpered like a frightened mutt. Of course, she was always relieved when she heard the whimper. It meant that soon his lathering carcass would roll off her, for he was not one to linger, whispering tender compliments. He just rolled right off. <laughs> yes, and there is, there is that, um, I think, following one of his orgasms, there's a delightful description of him reaching greedily uh, and today having done so he greedily reached for the present a blue box knowing that it was a gift for him opening it he grunted she explained it's a gold toothpick he chuckled an unusual sound coming him for his sense of humor was meager yes. <laughs> and yet she's still having sex with him yeah. but she does interestingly dump him really sort of abruptly yes so anyway here is a theme i think because it uh, coming to the paragraph after that we we see that she doesn't understand sometimes that's the only way you can get the message across give her a fat lip oh i know he's a total pig and what truman's so brilliant at is now that's great dialogue she you know you can a second-rate writer will say, well, somebody has the sensibility of a pig, mm. but you can then have put a phrase or dialogue or something in their mouth that will do all that work for you, too. And the same thing, to reiterate what you're talking about, after she gives him, after he takes, after his orgasm, and he takes the gift she's given for him, he grunts, that's kind of cute, and then he began picking his teeth. Yeah. You know what happened last night? Then he refers to his wife. I slapped Thelma. Mm-hmm. I slapped Thelma, but good. And I punched her in the stomach, too. I mean, if what you want asshole. Portrait, yeah, if you want the portrait of a pig yeah. skillfully portrayed, you know exactly what this guy's like. And you can see the greedy relish with which he do- both picks up the gift, but also recounts 
slapping his wife around. No, uh, it's the portrait of a pig. Yeah. And she's having sex with him. Yep. Well, well, okay. This is a, a throwaway line, but it stuck with me. It's like, this is how he starts it off, this paragraph off. He says, like many analysts, Dr. Benson was quite literal-minded. That's very interesting, <laughs> that's isn't it? A, that's a, quite a lovely put-down. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And you know that probably Truman had his share of psychiatrists yes, over the right. years. And that, that, that probably... And, you know, and it's true, and it may be, a, it's both a put-down, but also it's quite an accurate description of sure. a psychiatrist, and also maybe a good one, because a psychiatrist is not seduced by your language. They can often cut right through it and say, what you're really saying is this, and in fact, they can be very literal. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just, I just felt there was a bit of a slap. But it was, but, a, it uh, was, a, it was a slap. It yeah. definitely was a slap because I don't think, um, for all his experience with psychiatrists, I don't think that helped him at all. Yeah. Closely observed, however, one sensed a secret fatigue, a lack of any real optimism. His wife was. This is now. This is the, her husband. The one she loves, but can't yeah. have sex with because she's afraid of getting pregnant. Since then, she's talking about having a child. The yeah. child had been born two months prematurely. Since then, she had never shared a bed with her husband. She wanted to, but she couldn't. For the naked presence of him, the thought of his body inside hers, summoned intolerable terrors. The child was born prematurely, had nearly died, and because of massive internal hemorrhaging, yeah. so had she. Yeah, now she's... Uh... This is what he, the husband, is observing. Closely observed, however, one sensed a secret fatigue, a lack of any real optimism. Oh, that's so great. His wife was severely aware of it, and why not? Have you never felt she, that? She was its principal cause. She was its principal cause. That's interesting. She was uh, its principal cause, i.e., the lack of any real optimism. Wow. And she was aware that she's making him unhappy. You know, I missed that. That's interesting. That, that actually it's not life weariness, it's actually disappointment in what she no longer makes him feel. She's, she, and it is true, when you're with someone you don't want, there is a feeling of hopelessness mm. and bleakness. Well, and, she's afraid that she's the cause of his unhappiness. Right. And so, I guess, now we should say that she's feeding him all sorts of women he can have affairs with throughout this. Which seems, forgive me for sounding like a Puritan, that seems like a completely degenerate activity. It's, no, it's not Puritanism at all. It's like, what, so what are you with him for? Yeah, exactly. Good. Because I've always read that and I thought, I don't have any sympathy for something. That's a disgusting, mm. disgusting way of, uh, uh, you know, I've... Pimping for your lover seems yeah. like the lowest, yeah, goodness, lowest yes. rung on the ladder. Yeah. Earlier on, he actually says to her that he's going to leave her if they don't have a kid, right? He, he basically threatens to leave her if they don't have a kid. The husband does. I don't remember that. I'm sorry. I don't remember that. We'll probably yeah. have to scratch that. I don't remember that. 
I, because there's a the malaise of that story is the same way as the dentist. The one I think Carlos is the name. It's once again, he doesn't get what he wants. Right. Doctor Benson. I mean, strangely enough, the only one who gets what he wants in the whole story is the pig. And the pig gets to have carnal relationships with this woman who's intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally superior to him. Yeah. And so what does it say when the only person in the story is a pig and he's the only one who gets what he wants? Well, that's yeah. A, that's a, I've never thought of this before. Well, he goes that's off. Actually, and that's he, actually true. I mean... He, gets, he goes off and, and, and another patient who's pretty well like her, he basically does the same thing with the next patient, right, too. Right, right, right. It is as if, uh, you know, he's suggesting that happiness is available to the vulgar only. Because all the refined mm. people in this story are wounded by love and are crippled by love and by the fact that they don't get what they want from it. And I... I think that's true of Truman, but I don't feel that that's a. I don't think that that's true of life. I don't know whether you feel that way, but I don't feel as if love. And I've been married a number of times, but I don't feel like love has been a disappointment to me. I feel like love has been a source of great uh, happiness and great unhappiness, but most of all, has been an enormously electrifying life force that is mm -hmm. the best thing I think about being alive. I've always thought that. Mm -hmm. Well, you're with Tolstoy there. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But uh, you know, more so than 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 publishing books, or more so than than even having children, whom I adore. But there is something about the sparkle of love that really does make life change its entire complexion right in front of you. And when it's taken away from you, the entire world is yeah. draped in a kind yeah. of grayness. Not even. It depends, I guess, how how intense it was. It's not grayness. It's as dark as you can get. Yeah. Black. Yeah, it it's, is. It's the end of life. It's the end it of life. Is. You know, there's a wonderful poem by Apollinaire called Zone, and he talks about his one of the characters in his poem marching through Paris, and I'm going to say it comme si tu ne devais plus jamais être aimé. Forgive my accent, but saying as if you will never be loved again. And I've always remembered that line from that poem. I read it when I was 18, and I still remember it, feeling as if you will never be loved again. Mm, and yeah. it's an illusion, you know, If it's the greatest argument against suicide, is if you can just stick around long yeah, enough, life yeah. will give you what you want. Yeah, it's like there's, and again, it's trite, but there's more than one fish in the ocean, you know, and you have to believe that. And, and, and Capote is right when he says, just don't look for the same one. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's maybe the truest thing when I I read that story maybe 20 years ago. And I think that probably of that whole story, the thing that I come back to most often when I think about it is that line, which is, you will fall in love again, but just don't look at, look for it in the same kind of person. Yeah. This is a good little question mark beside this one here. The protagonist and her husband are having a conversation. And uh, we go, he was always careful not to offend her, just as she took the same care with him. A consequence of the quiet that simultaneously 
kept them together and apart. Oh, that's that's dazzling. That's dazzling. It's I don't understand you know, it. Well, I, I, what it does is it keep is it means that their manners are so exquisite mm. that it allows each one of them to be comfortable the whole time. But in that comfort, there's a separateness because they're never forced to feel anything, explain anything, mm. confront anything. So in the comfort is the alienation. Because they're never challenged or mm. at, quarreled with, or and I know yeah. that from my own experience that relationships that are like that, which are where the when you never, I mean, the death signal of a relationship to me has always been if you don't fight with your mm-hmm. lover, you you have a dead fish on your hands. I think yeah. that's what that statement is saying that they make each other so comfortable that they are not intimate in any way at all because that's difficult, that's challenging, that's trouble, and they both sheer away from it. Hmm. And I also understand, too, that after a while, you want a, a comfortable life. You don't want a confrontational life. I mean, I'm older now, and so are you. You know, I used to think that love and passion and fighting all night was how to live. I don't anymore. I actually think now that I'd rather have a peaceful, easy life. And mm. maybe it's not as confrontational and as spicy. As spicy. Maybe, maybe not, but I want, to, I want, I want a love affair where I can live, not a place that I visit and have to retreat from. Oops. I want to be able, I want to have a life to go along with my love affair. Hmm. That was well put. <laughs> you should write that down. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I, I also, because I, I do, and I don't think that that precludes spice. I also used to think that as a as a young person. I mm. used to think that no, if you're not battling all night, you lack spice. I think it's. I think that finding love is really a numbers game. Yeah. I think you have to go through a lot of people. You yeah. have to throw a lot of people back. But let me just finish this thought. Mm. And if you don't do that, then you end up settling for something else. But I think, and I believe this, and I don't think it's just romantic gibberish. I think if you look long enough and hard enough and you throw the little ones back, you will eventually get what you want. There, I've said it. So that's a lovely, optimistic way of looking at the universe. <laughs> We're talking fish here, too. You're throwing them back, right? So mm-hmm. There's more than one fish out there. Yeah, for sure. And I, I know, as I said, I've been married four times. Mm-hmm. We're... we're now entering the Mojave Desert, and that's because the husband is regaling his wife with this lengthy story about this old guy that he's young and he's hitchhiking in the desert. Yep. And he comes across this old guy yep. who, quote, looked as if he'd been lying in a hammock all his life. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> How great is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we like and that. that's the thing where he's standing out on the deserted highway with the sun beating down, and a truck goes by, and it doesn't do anything but run over a rattlesnake. Yeah, that image has stayed with me for twenty years. The rattlesnake crawling <laughs> yes. over the highway, yeah. and the truck going boom, yeah. running it over and chasing down the highway. You know? and here's another example. First of all, there was a very clever little thing. Where is that? And there's a sentence in there where this guy's ex, I believe, was, quote, fucking the balls off Freddie Fender. And I remember, I remember thinking, 
fucking the balls off Freddie Fender. I've never heard that expression before, but it's mm. actually a very, it's a very apt expression. And I think Capote made it up. I don't mm. think mm. I don't think I've ever heard that expression used before or since. <laughs> this is another example of uh, of Capote just again sort of starting with something that's interesting and then just throwing something else after it that's disjointed but funny and and appropriate i guess ever since my wife died she died the same day hitler died <laughs> no oh god had total, been driving me to to work <laughs> total total throwaway yeah but you know that's why in his prime Capote was at the center of every table because he would say things that were so sparkling and so mm. amusing and so clever. Yeah. And you know, one of the tragedies of, well, I don't know if it's a tragedy because I've always actually thought that given his terrible upbringing and the trauma of being gay in the 50s in the Deep South, I think it's astonishing that drug addict, alcoholic that he was, that he went on to produce as much stuff as he did. So I don't think the story of Truman Capote is a tragic one at all, even though it wound down in a tragic manner. I think mm -hmm. the fact that you can take his books, and we've got them in front of me right now, yeah. stacked up, and I think it's a miracle that he did as much as he did, given the drawbacks he started life with. Mm -hmm. Abandoned by his mother at the age of three. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's the thing. Like, I, I don't hang my head when the name Truman Capote comes up because in the end, he has this marvelous body of work. And yes, he did drink himself into madness and death, but he did a, more work than almost any other American writer in the 20th century of top drawer quality. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you uh, for introducing me to him. I haven't uh, hadn't really spent much time with him at all. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm expecting my students to come back in about five years and say, oh my God, I suddenly reread that story you taught us. And sometimes teaching is like that. Sometimes it takes five or six years to sink in. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to teach them Tolstoy and Capote. Uh, and I know that it hasn't taken now, but I know that with all good teaching that it will eventually. They'll someday, they'll pick up and they'll go, I have to read Mojave. I have to read it right now. That was the experience I had with the Greg Gatsby. I read it when I was 17. It did nothing for me. Mm. Eight years later, I was in France, and I woke up one morning, and I thought, I think I have to read the Greg Gatsby. And I went out and found it, and I read it. And up to that point in my life, it seemed that day to be the greatest book I'd ever read in my life. And it, it made me want to be a writer. It mm. changed my life. But it did nothing seven years before when I read it. That That is so true about reading it's it's about getting the right book at the right time. Absolutely. And it, 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 how do you do that? It's very difficult. Well, I think what you do as, an, as a parent or as an educator is that you expose your children to a whole bunch of stuff, most of which they're not interested in. Mm. But you put the seed in, very mm. much like the seed was laid in me for the Great Gatsby when I was 17. And I really didn't, it didn't register at all. And the seed matured and opened uh, seven years later. The same thing happened with Tolstoy, by the way. I read a biography of him when I was 30, and then five years later, mm. out of the blue, I yeah. suddenly thought, I think I have to read War and Peace. And mm. when I read it, I thought, 
I was in the Caribbean, I remember, and it was so extraordinary that I was stopping people on the road in front of my hotel on the way to the beach saying, have you read this fucking thing? <laughs> yeah, I was very lucky with uh, with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. I, was, I, I got it early 30s, exactly the right time. Great. So uh, great, and you know, the, in the end, the important thing is my son still. My son is thirty-four. He still hasn't got Tolstoy, yeah. but he will. Yeah. One of these days, it's just going to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I bored him to death for mm -hmm. fifteen years now about <laughs> Tolstoy, and you know, and I, I'm I'm teaching. I, I teach a class in creative writing, but I start every class with a reading of two paragraphs from War and Peace, and I go, folks. You know what time it is? It's time for, I say, what is time? And they say, oh, it's time for the good book. And I said, and what is the good book? And one student will put their hand up and they'll say, it's war and peace. And I'll say, okay, here we go. Here's today's reading. And I know that five years from now, half that class is going to pick that book up and go, oh my God, he, that old guy was right. This is great. Right now they tolerate it, but in five years they'll love it. So no one puts up their hand and says it's wine o'clock. No, it's no. I just read no. that the other day. No, it was stupid. Okay, um, now this, I think she's a prostitute comes into the old man's life. Yes, and her name is Ivory Hunter. She's the one. Who <laughs> Ivory up, Hunter. Ivory Hunter. Great name. Yeah, and she's the one who ends up fucking the balls off Freddie Fender. <laughs> And it's anyway, so so he's talking. He's the old man is talking, and this is being told by the husband to his wife, uh, talking about her. And he says, "Yes, sir, Ivory was all cunt." That's right. <laughs> you know. And then, but then, a little bit further down the paragraph, we read the Bible together, and night after night, she would read aloud from magazines, good magazines like readers. <laughs> <laughs> so that just tells you automatically how what this yeah. this guy's like. Yeah, absolutely. Good magazines yeah. like, like Reader's Digest. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's you know that's how you a great writer captures uh, a character. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't have to say any more than you don't that. Have to say any more than that. You know. And so you know when you it's like when you meet someone and they you say well how, how are you feeling about the you know your American president and they say oh I we think. We think he's the greatest guy. Do you know there was a poll recently? I, this has nothing to do with it, but I have to tell yeah, you this. Sure. Yesterday in CNN, okay. that, um, taken among poll among Republican, and they asked them, who do you think was the better uh, yeah. president? Lincoln, Lincoln or, or, yeah. or, 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 or Trump. Yeah. And 58 or 60% of them said Trump. It makes me understand, and this is nothing, but I want to just say this. It makes me understand the rise of Hitler in Germany. Yeah, I've never yeah. done it before. I Ignorance of the past. And mm. refusal to hear facts. That yeah. facts bounce like BBs off yeah. these people. Yeah. They don't penetrate. And I've never believed until now that people could be impervious to fact. Yeah. But there is like an illness right now which makes has made people in the States impervious to facts. Well, they half just them. Bounce half off. Of them. Yeah. Yeah. But... Half of them. I mean, yeah, yeah that's yeah. a it's, lot of. Well, you, do you just how do these people not see what's so patently obvious? And they don't care. I think yeah. the problem is, is I had someone said this to me two years ago. They said, "You don't understand that they don't care." 
And yeah. I don't understand how you can be confronted by facts and not care. Opinions, who cares? But facts. But the scariest thing is I suddenly understand how Hitler rose, which is there is a kind of illness that takes possession of people where they do not care about the facts. Everybody knew what Hitler was up to for years before he... Mm -hmm. They knew it yeah. for years. Here again is this theme, and uh, this is, we all sometimes leave each other out there under the skies, and we never understand why. I think that's, you know what, I think that's true. That is one of those uncomfortable truths. You know, when I, you first read it, you think, oh, that, that's not me, that's, that's Truman phrase-making again, but actually... Mm -hmm. When you think about that, all of us, at some point, have left somebody by the side of the road, and you think, oh God, I've actually done that. Somebody once said to me, they said, you know, even your best friends will at some point betray you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true, and I don't think that means they're bad people or that they're not best friends. But the notion that all of us, read that sentence out to me again, will you? Because that's a very, I find that sentence very stirring and very moving, but mm -hmm. very... Uh, well, just, let, read it again. Yeah, I will read it again. I just want to go, this is toward the very end, the very of, end. The, of, the, of the story. And after the story, because, George, because the old man in the desert is dumped by Ivory, right? Right. And then he says, I love you, Sarah. And Sarah says, I love you too. But that's, that's the married guy. That's the married couple. But then it says, but the touch of his lips, the insinuated threat, taunted her. And I think that's the pregnancy thing again. And, the, and that even a kiss from him suggests sexual intimacy, which suggests pregnancy, which suggests this nightmare ritual of giving birth, hemorrhaging, yeah, almost and, dying. and dying, yeah. He gave a slight pressure to their interwoven fingers and with his other hand raised her chin and insisted on their eyes meeting. He moved her hand up to his lips and kissed its palm. Um, let me just see here. Okay, so... I'll read that chapter, that, that sentence out again, okay. and then I'll read what comes after it. We all sometimes leave each other out there under the skies, and we never understand why. Yeah. An echo caverns resounding. Jamie, Sanchez, and Carlos. Those are the two uh, gay lovers. That's right. The, who are, the, who are the breaking up the yeah. hairdresser and his lover. And who has abandoned him for a woman. Yeah, and the, yeah, the woman is, well, not quite abandoned. They're still going to live together, right. which is weird uh, for him. And I'm, I'm unpleasant. That's Angelita. But abandon the exclusivity of their love affair by wanting to turn yes, it into exactly. somewhat improbable. Holga and Freddie Fio and Ivory Hunter and Mr. Schmidt, which is the people in the Out desert. Out the desert. And the, it's his girlfriend and... Uh, Dr. Benson and, and Dr. George. Dr. Benson, the hairy, sweaty, yeah, greedy. And, and George is the husband. George and, and George herself. Is the, the, the attractive husband who is the one who says, now 
when I'm in a room of fairly attractive young women, they look at me as if I'm not there, as if I'm just an old guy who smiles too much. Yeah. Great description. I've remembered that one for 20 years, too. Yeah. Uh, okay, and then... I love you too, she repeated with pretended sleepiness and with a feigned languor moved to draw the window drape. You read this part, right? Yes. Yeah, there we are. Uh, George, an urgent plea before the supper-laden Irish woman arrived, expertly balancing their offerings. Please, darling, we'll think of somebody. Isn't that, yeah, absolutely, her saying to him, look, don't worry, I'll find somebody for you to love and that we'll both be happy. And it's the most pathetic yeah. search for a solution. Yeah. You think of all the solutions that they've been reduced to, they actually, she's hoping that that's going to be one. She's his pimp. She's a pimp. And that one of these days I will find a woman for you that you really enjoy. And that's... That's as long as, as you stay with me. As long as you stay with me. That's as good as it's ever going to get for them. And that's what I meant that it underlines the theme of the story, which is that nobody ever gets what they want except the pig, Dr. Benson. Well, I think it's talking about how miserable and maybe fake the lives of the rich are. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that's a very good point. I mean, not just the rich, but you've got this image of if they've got all this money yeah. and opulence yep, yep, and yep. beautiful th things in their lives, yeah. uh, they must be pretty happy. I think you're right. I think, I think that's the aquarium that Capote swam in. And I think, like Scott Fitzgerald, he thought that these people <clears throat> had it all and should be happy mm. and continually discovered, the way Fitzgerald did, that actually very rich people aren't happy. And remember there's a famous line that um, Scott Fitzgerald said, and Hemingway made fun of it because Hemingway was a, a pig, but he said, Scott said to him, Ernest, the rich are very different from you and me. And Hemingway always prided himself on the line saying back to him, yes, yeah, Scott, they have more money. But actually, that's not true. Scott was right. The rich are very different. And one of the things that characterizes them, I think, is a kind of unhappiness. The unhappiness that comes from acquisition fatigue, which is that you have had everything, you've stopped looking, and you've resettled for the fact that what you want isn't haveable. Mm -hmm. And there is a kind of gray tragedy in that. And I think that that's what Capote talks about when he talks about um, the, these people. You're right. It's not a coincidence. They're all swimming in money. It's yeah. swimming in a lack of fulfillment. And even more so in the later stories, Coat Basque in, in, um, in uh, this book the, with the four stories, Answered Prayers, it's really a book about Trimalchio. You remember Trimalchio? Trimalchio was, it was a, he was in Satyricon and he was a slave who eventually got his freedom and became enormously rich mm. and threw huge parties and Scott Fitzgerald based Gatsby on Trimalchio. But Truman Capote was kind of a spy in the house of Trimalchio. He was kind of, he went into the houses of the very, very rich as a spy yeah. and came back with the news. And the news was 
these people really aren't happy. It's not just poor people saying that to make themselves feel better. They are authentically unhappy. And he got blackballed and blacklisted for that. Absolutely. For well, telling the truth about for that. For telling the truth about that. In, in, such, a, in such an entertaining it's way. Fabulous. I know. And the problem is, though, that a lot of people didn't give him credit for that. They said, mm. uh, you know, and I've even talked to fairly distinguished critics who said, yeah, but it's too bad that he wrote that last book, Answered Prayers, because it's just about sex and just yeah, no, about the, gossip. The, the, this last book is his best. I agree. I, I, I mean, I, again, I, I haven't I read a lot, agree. but from, from everything I've read in the last few days, this is really good. Yeah, it is. I've read it again and again and again, and it is a, it's kind of a guilty pleasure mm. uh, because you know that Truman is being naughty, but he's so skillful at a certain yeah. kind of high-end gossip, and his yeah. argument is, which is, look, Proust is just gossip, too. Gossip yep. turned into art, I think. He's taken his explorations Capote has with the swimming pools and the and the and the New York rich, and he's made it into art. And that's I think that's why you respond the way you. I'm really pleased that you like that book so much because a lot of people are shy to admit that they like it so much because it's almost too much fun to be literature. <laughs> you know what I mean? And 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 they think it should somehow it's not good for you. But it's, uh, it's hugely entertaining. It, and I think in itself that's good for you. Yeah, exactly. There's lots of really good laughs in here. But as I say, and I think this may also have done him in, the fact that he discovered and was put in touch with all of this unhappiness, I think that probably uh, contributed to the fact that he became dependent on drugs yeah and i think your your point about him covering the, the american rich could be called trivial but it's not trivial no, it's, it's not i mean you compare it to proust i find it just as entertaining i find it more entertaining than proust and i think you know i i think i mean I, and capote said an interesting thing about proust once and i've i've I never figured out whether it's right or not. But he said, but Proust, he said, you know, I would be really interested if Proust had actually just told the stories of the people that he based those characters on rather than turning it into art and disguising them. And mm. I remember thinking, well, that's a silly remark. And then I thought about it and I thought, no, if you do that, if Proust were to have written about the people directly, naming names, and real stories, you would have the answered prayers for France in 1920. That would have been his answered prayers. Mm. But Truman made the decision not to take it, that one extra disguising step into art. I think he was too impatient to do it. I also think he knew he had a great thing going, and that's what he wanted to write and how he wanted to write. Proust didn't want to write like that, but Capote did. Capote liked writing about those people in this bitchy, observant way. And he got some big uh, advances for this. Yeah, he... And, and in fact, they kept giving him advances and extending the deadline. Now, why, why couldn't he finish the damn thing? He, I, 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 I don't think that you can um, be an addict and mm. do anything mm. but mm. be an addict. Right. And, and I think that what Truman could do was he wrote an exquisite book while he was doing this. He was 
playing around with this book for 25 or 30 years. Mm. They started off by giving him a $25,000 advance because he was just coming off writing in Cold Blood, which was an international bestseller. They gave him 25,000 bucks. He, he did a chapter and then stopped and he got distracted. Gradually, the drug usage and alcohol usage uh, and the moral decay from hanging around with these kinds of people who really did have empty entertainment-seeking lives, I think it began to corrode his soul, and he became less mm. and less productive. He could only work in sprints, which is why there's an exquisite book of short pieces that he wrote, which is as good as Andrew's Prayers, and it's called Music for Chameleons. And it's short pieces of about 1,500 to 2,000 words. Mm. And I think he was doing cocaine when he wrote it, but for some reason he could handle cocaine. He couldn't handle alcohol and he couldn't handle pills. But for strange, some, and his biographer told me this, he said for some reason Capone could handle cocaine. And on cocaine he wrote much of the music for chameleons. Mm. Have you read it? No, but it I've, heard that it's not, I've heard that it's not so good. It's a jewel. It's the same people who put down answered prayers, put it down. They think it's glib and it's too easy, but it's the same sensation that mm. you have, which is a hundred dollar an ounce liqueur. You have to read it; it'll <laughs> knock you out. Okay. Well, and Mojave, by the way, yeah. is the first piece that he puts in music for chameleons. He decided not to put it in answered prayers, and he put it into music for chameleons. Okay. So it's a great kickoff for that book. What should the reader go for first, then? You think uh, chameleons and then answered prayer? Does it matter? I don't think it matters. Doesn't I think, matter. Okay. I think, but those are the ones. I think that they're more entertaining than even his masterpiece in Cold Blood mm. and his early short stories that made him quite famous when he was in his early 20s. Still, if you want to know Capote at his best, read either Music for Chameleons or Answered Prayers. Okay. And it's and and don't try to read anybody else after him for at least twenty four hours. <laughs> I think we've uh, I we've think done I'm him justice. Fired. We're here in advance of Christmas, and I had uh, thought of dealing with another of his short stories, a Christmas memory, which is quite different from the one we've been discussing, Mojave. But I think that we really have done. I think he'd be delighted, you know, yeah. and I, I'm a big believer and something that Truman forgot at the end of his life, which is always try to leave the party while you're still welcome. Okay, so it's time to leave the party. <laughs> I think it's time to leave the Capote party. Uh, okay, well, thanks for, thanks for uh, making it a party. It's, no, been, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking to David Gilmore, who is a uh, professor at... Is it Victoria College? Victoria College. Victoria College uh, at the University of Toronto. Thanks again. Good. You're welcome.